Lord Jesus, I pray that even as we move to this digital version of this virtual worship, this virtual teaching, Lord, that you be present in our midst, wherever we are in the city, and that you would speak to our hearts through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever had the experience of looking back over something and suddenly having it make sense? Maybe when it originally happened, you just didn't notice it, or you did notice it, but you didn't see any meaning in it. I think I have a strange memory. Sometimes I call it cinematographic. I easily forget people's names and things I have to do in the future. That's where Marilyn comes in and backs me up. But I remember many past events like they were running on a movie screen in my head. In fact, I can also remember big chunks of movies I've watched. And I remember once when I was a teenager, I'd just become a, become a Christian, and I was helping out on what, was, what they called a beach mission. This was in the 70s, when Brits still went to the beach in the UK for their vacation before cheap flights made it possible to spend a week in Spain where the water is actually warm and you didn't risk hypothermia by going swimming. So one day, it was my job to sweep the floor before we all went out on outreach to the beach. And I finished up sweeping, but we couldn't go anywhere because the van keys were missing. And at that point, I remembered that there had been a strange sound as I'd been shoveling the, the garbage into the bin, kind of a cross between a clunk and a clink. And this picture popped into my head of a set of keys going into the bin. So I went and checked the bin, and lo and behold, there were the keys. What had happened was that the keys had fallen off the nail on the wall, right into the pile of dirt I'd been collecting to put in the bin, and I hadn't seen them. Even so, the leader was really mad at me, even though I found the keys. I can remember saying, what kind of idiot puts keys in the rubbish bin? But I hadn't even noticed them when I was doing it. It was only when they went missing that it triggered my memory. And I think something similar is happening in the short, in the, the short passage we read from John 19. John says that it was that scripture would be fulfilled that Jesus says, I am thirsty from the cross. I had thought of breaking out of the series that we're currently in, the seven last words of Jesus, and doing something more focused on the current crisis. But then I realized that the gazing upon Jesus on the cross really speaks to every situation that comes into our lives. So we're sticking to the passage that was scheduled for today. And scholars agree that the specific scripture that John was thinking about when he spoke about scripture being fulfilled was the one that was read just earlier from Psalm 69. But how is Jesus' suffering on the cross the fulfillment of a passage like that? Well, Old Testament passages are fulfilled in at least two ways in the New Testament. One is when there's a pretty explicit prediction in the past of something that will happen in the future. 
This is what happens when the wise men come to Jerusalem looking for the child that's going to be born king of the Jews. And the Old Testament scholars tell them that the king of the Jews, the Messiah, was to be born in Bethlehem. That's pretty straightforward. There's another way that is both more common and less straightforward. And that's when the Old Testament doesn't so much foretell something as foreshadow it. And that's what we see happening with John in chapter 19. So as he's writing his gospel, many years after the events actually happened, in his mind, John goes back to the time when he was standing before the cross and watching Jesus suffer. I'm sure that when he was standing there, lots of things must have been running through his head. What will happen now? Why did it have to end like this? Did we, did we totally misunderstand what Jesus, Jesus was saying? But now, years later, with the benefit of, benefit of hindsight and the experience of seeing the church begin and grow, he can see what was happening on the cross. He can see that God's hand was in it. And as he reflects once more on that day, he sees the link between what happened to Jesus and what the psalmist wrote about a righteous man suffering for his faith in God. And the trigger for all of this is Jesus being given a drink. One of the things that struck me as we work our way through this series is how understated the whole description of the crucifixion is. Mark's gospel simply says, and they crucified him. Compared with Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, and its graphic descriptions of torture, the actual New Testament documents are surprisingly quiet about the details. Now, it's possible that people didn't need it described because crucifixion was so common. But there's also a number of books written, we've talked about them in earlier sessions, um, that were written between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament that tell about Jews being tortured for their faith by a Greek king. And not only there's a pretty gruesome portrayals of torture there, the people being executed have these calm, rational conversations with their torturers about how it's better for them to suffer for their faith than to give in. But there's none of that in Jesus' execution. No gruesome details of what's done to him, no extended conversations from the cross. Perhaps because the gospel writers saw the crucifixion as so central to their faith, they didn't want to elaborate on it in any way. And perhaps because Christians have always believed that the real battle that Jesus fought was internal, as the Son of God was cut off from his Father for the first time in history. So if we want to have an insight into Jesus' experience on the cross, we have to turn to the Old Testament passages that the gospel writers used as they reflected on the crucifixion. And this is where Psalm 69 can help us get some insight into Jesus' experience. Verse 7 says, For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. Jesus wasn't on the cross for anything he had done. He suffered as an innocent for his faithfulness to God's call. And we usually think of him suffering for our sake, but he also suffered for God's sake. He suffered because there was no other way for God to bring us back to himself. And it says, shame covers my face. Now, shame isn't something that comes immediately to mind when we think of Jesus on the cross, at least not if you're a Westerner. But 
Hebrews 12, 2 says that, that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. On the cross, Jesus felt the shame that rightfully belongs to us. A couple of weeks ago, there were readings that mentioned some of the tensions that appeared in Jesus' own family as a result of his ministry, as he followed his father's call to the cross. And verse 8 of Psalm 69 says, I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my mother's children, for zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. Every curse, every blasphemy, every time God's heart is broken by the rebellion and rejection of every human being, all that fell on Jesus on the cross. Last week we heard Jesus cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the midst of his pain, the suffering righteous one in Psalm 69 says something similar. Verse 16, Answer me, Lord, out of the goodness of your love. In your great mercy, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Redeem me because of my foes. We know that Jesus went through this kind of emotional turmoil. In the Garden of Gethsemane, before he was arrested, he struggled with his destiny. In Mark 14, 35 to 36, it says, He fell to the ground and prayed that, if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Everything in him recoiled from the cross and what it meant in terms of suffering, both physical and spiritual. But in the end, he comes to terms with it and he prays, yet not what I will, but what you will. And in verse 19 of Psalm 69, we find the passage that John remembered as he reflected on Jesus' crucifixion. You know how I am scorned, disgraced and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. And as John remembered that in response to Jesus saying, I'm thirsty, verse 29 tells us a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put a sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. John realized that all this had been foreshadowed in Psalm 69. One of the things that John seems to think is really important in his gospel is that people understand that Jesus was both human and divine, that he was both God and man at the same time. And of course, this is one of the most difficult things about Jesus. The Jews of his own day would have much preferred if Jesus had not made claims to be God by doing things like forgiving sins and using those I am statements. Many Greeks, on the other hand, would have been much happier if Jesus had not been human, since for them, matter was evil and only the spiritual was really important. But John insists that Jesus is both. And in that, he speaks to our own context as well. In many of our home countries, the tendency is to view Jesus as just a man, as Mary Magdalene sings in Jesus Christ Superstar. He may be a great man, a great teacher, the founder of a worldwide movement, but still, he's just a man. 
And our neighbors would agree with that. Except that they would probably give Jesus more honor than our secular friends back home. But essentially, they would agree that Jesus, even though he's a great prophet, is still just a man. Inside the church, on the other hand, there's a tendency to view Jesus as just God, if you can actually say that. We tend to spiritualize everything about him and have him, as it were, walk six inches off the ground. Even though the Gospels clearly show someone who ate, drank, got tired, went to parties, lots of parties apparently, and cried when his friend died. It's hard for us to realize that after a long day walking the roads around Galilee and Judea, Jesus probably smelled. A Middle Eastern crowd in summertime has a particular aroma to it. So John is concerned that we see Jesus as a real person. Someone who understands our experience of being human. And that's important in these days. We have no record of Jesus getting sick. But we know that he got hungry. We know that he got thirsty. We know that he got tired. And we know that he got lonely. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he pleads with his friends to sit with him and keep him company as he wrestles with his destiny. But they fall asleep totally oblivious to the internal struggles that Jesus was going through. And Jesus was disappointed and saddened that they couldn't even sit with him for a few hours. Mark 14, 37 says, Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch for one hour? And this is a time when we need to keep watch with each other, when we need to be aware of what other members of the congregation are going through. Some are introverts, and staying home for days doesn't really bother them that much. Others are extroverts, and as a meme going around the internet puts it, they're not okay with this. Others are concerned for their family members, for themselves. Others are just lonely, stuck at home all the time. Jesus knows how we all feel, because he lived a human life too. And we hear that humanness expressed in these words. I'm thirsty. Actually, in Greek, it's just one word. Dipso. Think about that for a moment. The Son of God was needy. The Son of God was thirsty, really thirsty. And he wasn't using his thirst as an opening to talk about spiritual living water like that time in John 4. He's just plain thirsty. And a strange thing happened. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of a hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. So they soaked a sponge in it. Who are they that soaked the sponge? Jesus is a condemned criminal hanging on a cross with a Roman guard watching over him and the others hanging around there alongside, along with him. If any of the crowd had tried to give Jesus a drink, they would probably have felt the flat side of a sword or the butt end of a spear. No, it must have been one of the soldiers who gave him something to drink. And part of the reason I say that is because of what Jesus was given to drink in the first place. The Greek says it was ochos, sometimes translated as vinegar, sometimes as sour wine, which of course is the same thing, because our English word vinegar is actually French, vanaigre. It's sour wine in French. But the ojos that Jesus drank wasn't what we think of as vinegar. 
that would have only made his thirst worse. The encyclopedia says Ochos was a popular drink in ancient Roman Greece made by mixing sour wine with water and herbs. And it's recommended by doctors for reducing fever, giving refreshment, helping the digestion. A bit like root beer in 19th century America. And eventually, it became the everyday drink of the lower classes in the Roman army. In fact, it was part of the daily issue of rations for Roman soldiers. And that's why there was a jar of ochos at the foot of the cross. The soldier gave Jesus some of his own ration. There was something about Jesus' suffering that evoked compassion in a hard-bitten Roman soldier. This wasn't an angry criminal cursing the system. Many of his last words were expressions of care for others. His prayer that God would forgive those who were executing him. His words of assurance to the thief at his side. His words to John and his mother. Now he expresses his own need and one of the guards gives him a drink. Matthew 27 tells us that the centurion overseeing the crucifixion was so impressed by what happened in front of him that he exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Maybe he was a soldier who gave Jesus a drink. We don't know. You see, Jesus' attraction isn't in his power. We are attracted to power, to charisma. That's what the newspapers and the TV follow, the great, the famous, the powerful. But that isn't what's attractive about Jesus. What's attractive about Jesus is his likeness to us. He's like us. He took on flesh like ours. He felt everything that we've felt. He went through everything that we go through except without sin. He was really human. The early church fathers used to say, what he did not assume, he did not redeem. In other words, if he didn't have a human body, then our bodies can't be redeemed. If he didn't have a human mind, then our minds can't be redeemed. If he didn't have a human will, our wills can't be redeemed, and so on. But Jesus was fully human. So much so that as he hung hung on the cross, one of the guards had compassion on him and gave him something to drink. So that the one who was dying on the cross as an act of compassion towards all humanity received an act of compassion from one of his executioners. It's in suffering and dying that Jesus draws himself to people to be saved. John 12, 31, he says, Now is a time for judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. You can't have Jesus without the suffering. He isn't just a teacher. He's a savior, a suffering savior, who suffered as a human being in order to restore us to God. That has two very practical outworkings for us today. The first thing is that it makes our suffering meaningful. And that's an important insight in these days. As people are suffering and dying all over the world, and now here in Turkey, as a result of the coronavirus, and it just seems also random and meaningless. One of the greatest struggles that we have with suffering of any sort is it often doesn't seem to make any sense. And you hear that cry in Psalm 69, the sense that everyone has left a writer alone to suffer by himself. Jesus felt that too. Unlike many of us, he understood the reason for his suffering, and he chose it. We don't have that option. Usually suffering just lands on us. 
But we can be assured that even if we don't understand the why, we know that God understands the what. That in Christ, he too suffered and he joins us in his suffering. The second thing is that because this is a path that Jesus followed, his call to discipleship is not a call to great power or influence. It's a call to be willing to suffer and die for righteousness. Most of us won't have to do that in any absolute way, although some of us have colleagues and friends who have walked that path in its fullness. But each one of us has to be willing to die a thousand deaths every day as we walk the path of Jesus, to swallow our words, to not hit back when someone attacks us, to serve others when they don't appreciate it, to go the second mile to help someone, even when the little voice inside our head is going, let him do it by himself. Jesus took on our humanity so that we might be transformed into the image of God to restore what Adam lost. That's why he went to the cross. That's why he's with us today, calling us to follow him and promising his power and enable us to do that. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, Lord, we thank you for identifying with us, for being human, for taking on human flesh with its potential for pain and loss and loneliness and everything else in order that we might draw close to you and that you might restore us to what you intend us to be in the first place. Lord Jesus, forgive us when we take the easy way out. Help us, Lord, to draw upon your grace to walk the difficult road of walking in your footsteps, even when it means suffering. In your name we pray. Amen.